Welcome to Engineering Influence, a podcast from the American Council of Engineering Companies. Uh, we here at ACEC like to focus in on uh, the work that our member firms do, the essential work and the value that work actually provides to society and to the economy as a whole. And it's always great to put a spotlight on the firms in our industry that are doing a fantastic job of uh, of work that's both engineering and then also consultancy services on a wide range of markets and industries, and not just the things that we always talk about 90% of the time, which is infrastructure or, or, or just, you know, engineering structures or buildings. And a perfect example of that is the firm Jensen Hughes, who is widely respected since 1939 as being the leading, one of the leading firms, um, about, uh, safety, security, risk-based engineering, especially in fire protection services, but they've grown to do so much more. And, and another thing about the firm is their focus on ESG uh, and how this all comes together is, is a really great topic to look at uh, and, and take, a, take a dive into. And to do that, I am very pleased to welcome onto the program the CEO of Jensen Hughes, Raj Aurora. Raj, thank you very much for coming onto the show. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. It's a real honor. So, Raj, uh, tell us a little bit more about the firm and you know how Jensen uh, Hughes kind of approaches its work. Uh, it, it's a very diverse set of, of 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 industry kind of sectors that it works in, and and how it kind of positions itself in the marketplace. Sure. Uh, well, Jensen Hughes is an engineering, consulting, and technology company that makes our world safe, secure, and resilient. So like you said, we're best known for our leadership in fire protection engineering, and that's a legacy of global leadership we've had since 1939. But we also excel in the areas uh, that are very critical to advancing safety, security, and resiliency, including accessibility consulting, risk and hazard analysis, process safety management, forensics investigation, security and emergency management. And across all of those services, we have technology platforms that underpin all of those. And, you know, our clients really rely on us uh, because we solve some very complex and unique problems for them and give them peace of mind that they'll be safe and secure. And as the largest professional services provider in our specific industry, we serve all markets such as government, healthcare, science and technology, energy, mission critical, infrastructure, to name a few. And our mix is about 70% private sector, 15% uh, utility, and 15% pure public sector work. And we have uh, 1,500 colleagues approximately across the world performing 22,000 projects annually in 100 countries. And I just wanted to say I'm very proud to be leading this company and to be associated with such amazing professionals. It, it really is amazing when you look at all of the areas that you touch, uh, both in private, public, and in the utility space. It's practically every area that... Um, is really talked about and, and it's a hot market right now from energy storage to nuclear power to uh, climate issues related to wildfire protection. I mean, that, that's a, that's a big um, a basket of 
areas to be be uh, be involved in. And then, of course, your firm is also very engaged in the ESG side of things. I mean, from from a from a leadership position as CEO of the firm, how do you view environment, social governance? issues and and how do you kind of weave it into the work that the firm does and what kind of sets Jensen Hughes apart from the pack when it comes to ESG well environmental social and government governance is a very big focus for Jensen Hughes and that obviously yields benefits for our employees our clients our investors and we feel that it's our obligation uh, to focus on making the world a better uh, place, and in our case, safe, secure, and resilient. And let's face it, Jeff, uh, you can't ignore these topics, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, quote unquote. And for the sake of this discussion, I'm assuming the audience has a high-level understanding of ESG. So I just wanted to dive into our approach. And you know, in the traditional sense, ESG is generally aimed at what a company can do internally to help make a difference in sort of all the multi-pronged ESG spaces. And we're no different in that regard. I mean, we have a heavy focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and very specifically having a culture where we value and celebrate differences, treat every individual fairly and empower uh, what makes them who they are. And in addition, we've reduced our carbon footprint through getting smarter about offices, travel for internal meetings, and we're also ensuring our suppliers are accredited to the ISO 14001 standard for sustainable suppliers. And on on the overall governance, our policies and protocols ensure that Jensen Hughes operates reliably and effectively, and our enterprise risk management processes that we've just launched will take things to the next level. You know, one specific area is information security, which, you know, we all know about the cyber risks that exist. You know, we've invested heavily and it's made a real difference from uh, for us. But all of this said on the internal initiatives, we don't think that's enough. You know, and the very unique part about our company is that our core offerings for our clients, you know, help them and their investors achieve ESG goals. So it's Doing, doing well by doing good, if you will, Jeff. Um, so in two major areas. So one is on environmental stewardship and decarbonization. Uh, we're defining best practices in issues that shape our future and our g- grandchildren's future. Uh, as you mentioned, like how to manage wildfire risk, engineer new energy storage systems, and safely advance carbon-free infrastructure Uh, like nuclear power. And then the second is on healthy communities, societal well-being, and governance. We're connecting police and communities in new ways and continuously giving back through volunteer service, pro bono work, and direct contributions to programs that uplift humanity and extend compassion to those in need. And it's really fulfilling when you know your company influences the actual change and outcomes that are needed in the world. Without question. I mean, that is, uh, it's very interesting uh, because it's it's an example of how engineering firms are, are having a direct tangible impact on shaping the world that we want to live in uh, for, the, for the foreseeable future. Because, 
with all of this rapid innovation and in technology, there are significant challenges that come along with those that deal with how do you deal with the tech, you know, the, the powering of technology. Of course, you know, one thing I want to talk to you about is, is energy storage, especially when it comes to lithium batteries, because I think that's a, that's an interesting topic. Um, you know, not only the mining of the materials, of course, which is a separate issue, but when you get into the topics of storage, uh, tra- you know, moving batteries, that was a big issue when I was on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee when we were talking about uh, battery, uh, the batteries in, in the Boeing, for example, the, the Dreamliner, uh, or, or traveling with batteries, um, and then storing the batteries in such a way where there's not a risk of them uh, igniting or, or exploding. And then what happens at the end of the life cycle? Um, how, you know, looking at all those different challenges, you know, where do you see, do you see lithium ion as kind of a, a the standard bearer for energy storage for the long term, or do you think it's an, an, an intermittent step towards something else that that will kind of take its place? Uh, well, let me just take a step back, and I'm going to dive into that. But there's several factors at play. Obviously, the drive for renewables is the biggest yeah. one. I think everyone is aware of that push. And then there's also um, factors like power grid peak shaving, electrical load stability, and the desire for energy independence. And you know, for those reasons, the market is turning to these energy storage solutions. And at the heart of that is this lithium-ion battery protection. And they're everywhere, Jeff, from large-scale utility applications to very small-scale batteries, you know, for power power packs for mobile devices. And I, there is new technology that's being innovated or researched and tested, but this technology is going to be deployed um, for the foreseeable future. And the reason why it's such an important topic in our world is that these batteries present some very unique challenges and hazards, such as overheating, off-gassing, thermal runaway, and we don't have to get into all the um, you know details on the hazards, but the result of those are air contamination, fire, and explosion. And I think we've all read in the news about uh, those types of results. And this happens due to manufacturing defect, improper design and installation, overcharging, physical damage, and like you said, um, how you transport these batteries. So our role in this is we help owners and insurers and integrators manufacturers and approving authorities kind of get educated and help them apply the standards and come up with innovative ways to be safer from start to finish. And we provide a variety of design and assessments and training in the areas of fire, explosion, electrical safety, security, and emergency response. And just the fact that we approximate that, um, There's been 10 gigawatts of energy stored on projects that we've worked on, and we've provided these hazard mitigation analyses and designs for the largest energy storage sites in the U.S., and it seems like every day there's a new one that is claiming that they're the largest. Yeah. So um, it's a really big growth area for us, and like I said, uh, this battery technology is here to stay. 
Yeah. It, it is it is something which is is very interesting and it's going to become just a, a, a bigger, I think, um, opportunity for uh, your firm and, and, and firms like it that as we as we expand the use of these batteries, we're going to kind of figure out how, how are we going to store them? How are we going to uh, to use them more effectively and, and mitigate the risk that comes along with them? Uh, you know, it's 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 funny how I think about you know, down my own community. We had one house go solar and then within a month, three other houses go solar. And um, they also have the large, you know, residential um, lithium ion storage, not just either through, you know, the Tesla ones that you, you know, everybody knows about or, or just the other kind of storage systems. And, you know, it's, it's always a concern about how are those installed and are they going to be good for the long term and how are they going to, you know, how are they going to uh, stand up the test of time? So as, as these technologies get more accepted, um, it's going to become a, a greater challenge uh, without question. The other issue, uh, which is, I think, kind of fits in with the issue of climate and and dealing with energy generation, of course, is something that we don't talk nearly enough about um, is nuclear power. Um, where does uh, Jensen Hughes come in on nuclear power and how is it how is it apply its specialties to, to that market? Yeah, that's a great conversation. And in the last 18 months or so, nuclear power has been more widely recognized as essential to climate goals, which is a good thing. And it is the cleanest and safest and most reliable form of power we have, despite some of the perceptions and the voices are getting louder across the globe. And before I talk about our role in it, you know, I just wanted to give some facts from our friends at NEI, which is the Nuclear Energy Institute. Um, and nuclear power generates approximately 20% of all the electricity in the United States. Um, it generates more than 50% of our carbon-free electricity. And the plants operate 24-7, making it a great complement to wind and solar. Um, and U.S. nuclear plants are more than 100 times safer than regulatory safety goals. Um, and if Build Back Better passes in some form or fashion, I know we're not here to talk about that, but we could do a whole podcast <laughs> a whole episode on, on that. that. The landscape could really change due to the tax credit, the nuke production tax credit that is currently included in the conversations. and. I don't have a crystal ball, but there doesn't seem to be pushback on any side uh, on that particular item. And the reactor technology for nuclear is evolving and it is it is advanced. You know, the new new reactor technology is advancing the adoption of new applications across size ranges. So from replacing large grid generation to off-grid localized generation, which all results in reduced costs and increased safety and performance for the market. So for us, and getting back to your question, I mean, for more than 40 years, we have pioneered what we call and what the industry calls risk-informed engineering and fire protection engineering um, across the industry. 
And we provide all aspects of risk technology as well, from analysis of potential accident scenarios and generation risk to radiological release, both for the internal plant events and the external conditions like seismic issues or flooding. And our experts in software technology has helped us maintain a real um, dominant role to enhance safety and operational performance at the current fleet of reactors. Yeah, I think it's a, now, it's just a good a, example. Oh, I'm I, sorry. I, no, no problem. I, I was just going to say it's a good example of how, how you're making a very safe form of energy generation even safer uh, for people who think that, you know, nuclear hasn't really, nothing's changed in the space. It's quite opposite. It's, it's, it's only gotten more um, specialized and safer um, over the years. Yeah. And it, the, there's a, a practice and a tool called probabilistic risk assessments that we've developed uh, and perform for more than 80% of the U.S. industry. Um, so we've developed their models and it's just a really intelligent way of ensuring safety um, and one specific example I wanted to give is that we've performed um, the analysis to support the what they call the extension of surveillance test intervals, about 700 of them. This is how a plant looks at their equipment and how it's tested, how it's maintained, how safe it is, et cetera. And we provide an intelligent risk assessment to saying, you know, those pieces of equipment can should be maintained at these different types of frequencies. And sometimes those deviate from, um, you know, some of the requirements that are in the codes and standards. And it's resulted in savings of millions of dollars for our clients. So it's we're helping them get a more efficient uh, as to drive the positive economics of the nuclear industry, which then can help drive further decarbonization. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, that's and 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 this is something which um, hopefully it's um, hopefully we'll be able to increase our nuclear capacity. <laughs> I, I, you know, hopefully we'll be able to not only just just expand the the, the number of new plants, but also um, you know use it uh, to to greater extent to kind of offset some of our more traditional uh, less clean energy options because, you know, the talk is always about coal power and, and how are we going to move away from coal and if we're going to go to wind, but nuclear is that tried and true, um, and, and, and the system that all the, all the work that you're doing, um, you know, to make it safer, to get the testing even better, to make it an even, uh, cost savings, uh, on that model. Uh, it, it's, it's a great alternative to your fossil fuels. Um, so that's, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. And Jeff, you um, know, it's the perfect world would be new builds. Um, yeah. but I think the first step is to stop plant closures, which mm -hmm. that seems that's out of the conversation in my mind. And then using the existing fleet that we have and the capacity we have, uh, in ways to provide more power, uh, to people as a complement to other forms of um, renewable type of energy, uh, that would be the first step. And then the next step would be deploying some of these new technologies to broaden um, 
the fleet. Yeah. Well, I do. I also want to cover a kind of away from the energy side of things. Um, two things that are, um, eh, I guess you can call them kind of combined, I guess, you know, you're looking at, um, of course, wildfires and, and, and the increase. It seems as though oh, you can't go a week without hearing about a new fire, especially in California or the West Coast. Um, but then also the, the increased interest in mass timber, which is something we're looking at and we're actually going to focus in on next month at a private market symposium on, on residential and uh, commercial real estate is this uh, a growing interest in the use of mass timber. And, and, and now that the codes are such that you can actually build larger structures with mass timber. But let's, let's talk about wildfire first. Uh, because this is something which is is growing in concern, not only for policymakers but um, for engineering firms that are that are dealing with risk and dealing with how do we design uh, to mitigate or to deal with the risk of increased uh, uh, wildfires. Um, how does your firm approach this issue and 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 its work for its its public and, and private sector clients? Yeah, well, to state the obvious, Jeff, growth in frequency and scale and severity of these major wildfires across the globe presents a huge risk. And we're seeing increasing levels of devastation, you know, at the wildland urban interface, or if you want to be, have some street cred, you would say wooey. And uh -huh. that's where the vegetation meets areas of residences and commercial buildings and the breadth and magnitude of the short and long-term impacts to physical and social and economic and environmental, even political uh, high value assets. It's alarming yeah. and complex and it's going to continue to increase. And in addition to the impact to the environment, the financial losses are between eight and a half to 10 and a half billion per event. If you can believe that. Yeah, it's amazing. And the reality in our space, uh, Jeff, is that there's a strong need for fire science, engineering, and research across all, the whole stakeholders group, whether it's the municipalities or the forestry agencies, the utilities and insurers, and then the building owners, home and mm -hmm. building owners. And historically, there's been an overemphasis on response and not enough on the entire life cycle, right? So prevention... Yeah then response and recovery. And I don't want to get into this too deeply, but there's also a confused insurance market, right? The insurers and the underwriters and the reinsurers um, have a slightly different lens depending on who you talk to. So our role in this is helping uh, change the paradigm with our experts in this area. And we're helping clients across the world assess risk, and employ prevention, response, and recovery measures. And some of the specific work we do is on wildfire behavior modeling, utility hazard and fire risk, just overall vulnerability assessments, and then mm -hmm. climate, weather, and fire impact analysis, vegetation management plans, and emergency response planning. And maybe I can give you a quick example. Yeah, absolutely. Is that we've recently created a two-volume community wildfire resilience white paper for FEMA. And that's to identify the current landscape of safety regulations, guidelines, and practices across the U.S., as well as a gap analysis that will affect um, or will help 
uh, direct FEMA's efforts in reducing this risk, um, you know, this has led to some very uh, interesting outputs and efforts by the FEMA building science branch to increase its role in the wildfire risk mitigation efforts and to help use engineering and science to basically um, employ best practices. Mm -hmm. So just a quick example there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point because the, um, as you mentioned, the focus for so much time has been on response. Um, the view of wildfires being natural, um, you know, not always regular. They don't happen, you know, of course you have a wildfire season in certain areas that are prone to it that you expect it to happen. Um, but that thinking ha has shifted and needs to shift more towards the mitigation because, as you mentioned at the outset, that this is becoming a more frequent uh, issue, uh, a more devastating issue, not only on, on, on loss of property and potential loss of life, but also the economic impact. And moving to this uh, mitigation first uh, model, both uh, um, on the part of uh, the builders or the owners of property, but then also by government and their response to it, that you, if you spend more time in mitigation, hopefully you reduce that the severity of the impact at the outset at the end of an event. But also the modeling work that you're doing is helping to kind of shape the way that communities, local governments, kind of write their own codes or, or zoning codes and deal with um, preventing the next fire uh, or, or reducing its impact. Um, and that's that's an important thing. That's it's that my it's, and it's important to think about this is that you know when I'm when I was on the committee on TNI again, <clears throat> excuse me, we dealt with this issue, and we dealt with risk mitigation and, and disaster preparedness and response, and it was a sea change in people's minds about how government should respond to the threat of wildfires or the threat of severe weather, and it was always thinking about what is the federal government going to do after the storm comes. How are we going to respond to the damage? And it was um, it took a while for people to shift their minds for, for really how do we respond to, how do we deal with it before it happens? Um, and that's something which our industry needs to, I think, do a better job of talking about is that we are engaged in helping to mitigate the risks of these natural events uh, through specialized design, consultancy, you know, and, and, and just the modeling that you do. So I think that's a, that's an important point that you raise, um, of helping to, to mitigate, um, the, the, the costs of, of wildfires. Jeff, I think you have a future as a wildfire risk management consultant. <laughs> if I were only good at the technical things, um, <laughs> I, uh, but let, let's, uh, let's take a look at this other issue, which is, I, I, I really find this interesting. Um, mass timber, uh, which, I talked to our, our my, my colleague over in the private market space, and she talks about the growth in mass timber and, and, and the way that uh, uh, firms are looking at exploiting the new building codes for, for larger structures. And of course, you know, you have kind of the, the with any material that you employ in the design of, of a structure, of course, that, that they bring along their own you know, complexities and, and issues. So uh, you know, how does the firm look at this market? Um, as, a, as an opportunity for, for growth? I mean, how, how are you approaching mass timber? Well, certainly a trend uh, with the architects, uh, but let me just start by saying it's nothing new, but it's re-emerging um, as there's a drive for sustainable building 
design and construction. And it involves the use of large solid wood panels for wall, floor, and roof construction, just to state the obvious. And it's become this trend, not just for sustainable agendas, but aesthetics. Uh, the architects think it looks nice and it's trendy uh, in terms of design, uh, but also there are cost benefits and there's speed of construction, you know, with especially when, when you look at other materials and supply chain issues and, and, and the rest of it. So the building code, so w- when we do design and construction and we all do it, we all follow building codes. And the 2021 international building codes and many local jurisdictions have made uh, provisions to use mass timber. And timber was previously limited to buildings under 85 feet in height. And the code now permits new types of construction for heights up to 270 uh, feet and 18 stories. And, you know, one nuance is when it's protected with fire sprinklers. But that gives designers greater flexibility in construction material choices. Now, mass timber comes with some nuances. So so first is fire performance. And obviously, that it's perception versus the actual performance. But, you know, when you have wood, you got to make sure that, you know, it's not a combustible construction and mass timber exceeds the fire performance of traditional dimensional l- lumber by developing a predictable char layer that insulates the core and allows the members to continue bearing load well into a fire vent. So the performance is better. And like I said before, is you got to, from a code perspective, ensure that although you're using a quote unquote combustible material, that you classify the building as non-combustible construction or non-combustible structure. That's kind of where we come in. And it's a little tricky because you have four approved types of this assembly and it requires some analytical methods to ensure safety. So mass timber includes not just, you know, solid sawn members, but built up assemblies such as CLT, cross laminate timber, those panels, and then some other engineered wood products that meet the minimum dimensional criteria. So our role in it is we help our clients navigate the whole design process. We educate them on their choices, and we provide creative solutions to the changing technologies. And that's often supported with what we call a performance-based analysis, which is a lot of fire modeling and uh, performance analysis. And one particular example I'll, I'll mention is the University of Idaho's new basketball arena. It's a really great site. It's the Idaho Central Credit Union Arena, and it's all wooden, state-of-the-art, seats 4,200 people. We provided the fire protection and life safety code consulting, which encompasses whole performance-based design with fire modeling, like I mentioned to demonstrate the code equivalency for the fire resistance rating of the proposed construction. So we're very proud of that project that we performed. That's something. Um, Yeah, it's interesting um, how it, like you said, you know, architects are trying, kind of driving the trend for this more um, of a natural um, 
use and design. And of course, engineers are, are responding, but it's critically important to do all the all the modeling and putting the technology there so you can actually make sure that it happens and it's safe for the long term. Um, and and I think this is a great example of, of, of again, you know, this is a you know, what's a good carbon sink? It's 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 a good uh, choice for not only aesthetics but also uh, environmental. And 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 it's a good example of the engineers helping, you know, their partners in the design process. You know, you have an idea, engineers make it actually tangible and happen. Uh, and and this is a good example of that. Um, I want to switch gears because this is something which is very interesting and something we've talked about from uh, our own strategic planning at ACEC, which is how engineering deals with societal equities, right? And what does that mean? You know, we talk about engineering a uh, city plan or helping to engineer land development in such a way where it opens up and breaks down socioeconomic borders, or you're talking about transit systems that allow people... Uh, regardless of challenges in mobility to get from point A to point B, and you create a, a, a built environment that is more open, accessible, and, and, and equitable to all of, of society. Your firm takes a more direct route um, because you're engaged in law enforcement consulting. And this, of course, has become a very hot topic issue, uh, something which is uh, really driving much of the debate over equity in society. Um, exactly how, how did your firm get involved in this and what, what are you doing with police departments and communities um, to bring your own special risk mitigation and, 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 and expertise to this to this area? Well, Jeff, I started this podcast and I said that we're an engineering consulting and technology company. So this is in the consulting realm of our business. And I said our um, purpose is to make our world safe, secure and resilient. And this fits kind of all three, um, especially ticks the boxes on security. And so we we came into this. Jensen Hughes is a combination of many different companies. Uh, over the last 10 years. And there was an acquisition that we made. The legacy company was called Hillard Heinz, uh, based in Chicago. And this is what really brought this expertise. And it's a real synergy in our broader safety, security, and resiliency portfolio. But it's all about healthy communities, societal well-being. And there's also the G in ESG here that plays into effect and let me start by just giving you a fact that our consulting has assisted over 25,000 sworn-in law enforcement officers over the last few years. And, you know, we have provided the after-action reports and the assessments for the Louisville Police Department, uh, which resulted from the fallout from the death of Breonna Taylor, uh, as well as the assessment of the city of Minneapolis's response to the protests and riots that occurred after the death of George Floyd. So some pretty marquee things. And if I take a step back, many police agencies have made great improvements in their operations over the last couple of decades by focusing on the principles of community-oriented policing. That's in, in which agencies were closely with external entities like nonprofit organizations and social service agencies, 
to address the root causes and outcomes of social issues associated with crime. And But that being said, the upheavals that have occurred in our society in the U.S. after what happened with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd has made it apparent that there's just more that needs to be done. And specifically, professional uh, police departments are focusing currently on incorporating a multidisciplinary approach to address some very high profile problems throughout the country, which include responding to calls for service associated with those who are unsheltered or even experience a behavioral health crisis. But, you know, that may not be the true role of of the department. And it's becoming clear that the police department is being asked to cover a broader array of of things based on budget cuts, right? So um, they've been called as a last resort into these situations. Um, So anyway, the police departments are turning or law enforcement agencies are turning to us um, for technical assistance to, as they strive to learn what their agencies can do to improve. and while the administ- the new administration has been slow to kind of re-energize things, the DOJ, uh, the U.S. Department of Justice Community-Oriented Policing Program, the COPS Office, um, is embarking on a huge opportunity to advance, um, you know, the effectiveness of these different police departments around the world, those who are in need. And we help offer assistance as uh, these entities engage in consent decrees, which um, need to be brought into operational compliance, but also those who are proactively seeking external and third-party support to kind of advance their mission. And when I said the G is at play here, so in addition to the social elements of ESG, this also touches governance, specifically the governance systems for for police departments to reach their full potential. Um, so the S and G kind of at the same time here. Jeff. Absolutely, yeah. So this, I mean, the work you're doing is right at the core of a lot of the uh, the debate that's going on. Um, you know, especially last year uh, with with the discussion of and again, you know, I don't, leaving leaving the the whatever surrounds the issue on the table and talking about exactly what was but what getting at the core of what people were actually talking about don't think about the labels right um the idea was do community police departments um have to be like the way that we police right now should it be more of a community approach? And should you have, like you said, the community-oriented policing where you have uh, social services groups focusing in on dealing with issues that right now the police have to do and have to deal with, and that kind of takes their attention and their resources so they can't do their primary mission? And how do you create kind of a more of a, of a, of a community-based approach to not just law enforcement, but you know, making sure that people get the services that they need? So uh, the fact that your firm is, is engaged in that and helping communities um, pay attention to this, I, I, that's, that's, that's a really big thing. And that's the kind of thing that changes culture, changes the way that the country approaches 
um, some of its most important um, uh, interactions between the government and the citizenry, which in large part, day to day happens at the street level, normally between law enforcement and, and individual citizens. Uh, so that that's really something interesting and unexpected when we started talking about this, you know, and, and, and the work that you're doing, the fact that you've kind of engaged in this space. I mean, do you know of any other firm within our industry, which is which is doing work like this? Or, or are you kind of standing out there uh, uh, as 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 a unique as a unique firm in this space? I would say we're the market leader in the space in general and that no other engineering and consulting firm like ours is doing this work. And, you know, I mentioned in the beginning that I'm just really proud to be the leader of such a firm like Jensen Hughes. And this is an example of, of that. Well, it's, it's really something. And I, I do want to kind of tie everything together here because throughout all the questions and answers and talking about different areas, everything from, from energy storage to community policing, uh, wildfire, mass timber, there are terms that kind of came up on each one. You know, you're doing the modeling, you're doing technology, uh, you're applying technology to all these different challenges. In your view, you know, how important is uh, technology uh, to all the ESG offerings that uh, you offer your clients? I think it is absolutely critical, not only in the ESG offerings, but for our industry and for those who are listening um, technology is just a powerful lever, lever to transform and reinvent our industry. And that's how we view it at Jensen Hughes. And it just represents a step change in how we're providing value to our clients, our industries, and our markets. We actually have been at technology for over a decade. Today, we have about 10 uh, software technology packages that are available to our clients or available to our team members to use as they do the work. And we just aim to provide value in, in four specific areas. That's increasing quality of our product to achieve compliance to standards, to reduce risk. And the, you know, the biggest one is to drive operational efficiencies for our clients, right? How do we lean and streamline things? And we have a suite of products. It's called the Advisor Suite. And one of our key products is called Risk Advisor. And the Risk Advisor is for nuclear power. And that's why I'm mentioning it here, because it fits into the ESG uh, conversation. And, and it's designed for um, to add value on that risk-informed and fire protection engineering, which ultimately meets the decarbonization uh, goals. And a fact is that 70% of the U.S. nuclear units have at least one Jensen Hughes software product hmm. in use today. That's something. Wow. I, you know, I have to ask, uh, you know, because another thing we always look at is how do we, you know, maintain the pipeline of talent coming into the industry. With everything that you talked about, I, I, it's, it's so much you could choose, right? But if you had a, a student out there um, or, or, or someone who would be interested in being an engineer, but at the same time, you know, they're in college and they're also hearing the siren song from Silicon Valley, you know, to go to an Amazon or a Google or another tech startup, uh, you know, a smaller company, um, you know, what would you say to them 
to make them change their minds and and to come into the field of the consulting engineer, let's say? Well, that is a great question. Uh, I think I would make sure from an innovation and industry perspective that they knew professional services was more than just professional services. There are products and software technologies that are converging on the space every day. Um, so there's a, a wide variety of things. And I think we need to make sure that we have engineers coming into um, our, our industry that actually value client touch and making a difference and solving problems on the front line for our clients. And some of the other industries, you may not get that client touch and you may not feel that you're making a difference as much as you would in a space like ours. Um, I have a strong passion for this industry. And I think there's a generational change occurring in this industry as well that provides tremendous growth opportunities for younger uh, professionals to, to be promoted and rise very quickly. We don't want people to rise too quickly because we want them to have a very well-rounded and strong foundation under them. But it's a great profession and one that um, is poised for a lot of investment yeah. as well, as we yeah. know. Well put. Well, I, I would love to have you back on to kind of focus. And we talked a lot of different areas here, and I wanted to kind of have this as a nice intro call to talk about the different uh, markets that, that the firm is engaged in. But love the opportunity to dig in a little deeper, um, especially on, on, on the energy storage, nuclear side of things, um, maybe some of, the, some of the wildfire stuff. So I'd love to have you back on the show. Well, I think I passed then. Thank you for having me. It's <laughs> been a real honor. And I love the ACEC organization and everything uh, that you all stand for and the difference that we together are making in the industry. So thanks a lot, oh, Jeff. I really appreciate I, it. I, I do appreciate it. And, and again, that is, has been uh, Raj Aurora. He is the CEO of Jensen Hughes. Uh, and this has been Engineering Influence, a podcast from the American Council of Engineering Companies. We'll see you next time. Thank you.